Would you turn to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians 3, and reading today from verses 5 to 7. We're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. And so the Word of God says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Therefore, this is what this passage begins with, and we've learned for so long that whenever Paul writes this word, therefore, what this means is that we have to press the pause button on our reading, and then we have to ask this ought to be a knee-jerk question. What's therefore, therefore? Because what Paul wants us to do is to um, bring with us all that we've learned so far, all the reasons that we found in the previous passage that why we ought to seek the kingdom of heaven. Why is it that we ought to seek the things above? And he wants us to bring those reasons with us and pour them into our heart. Why? As the motivation to obey what he's about to tell us in this passage. So what we want to do is we want to be submissive to the, the line of thoughts in, in the Word of God. And we want to quickly have a look, bird's eye view, what were the reasons as to why we ought to seek heaven? First reason, if you recall, again, in verse 3, it says, For you have died. That's why you seek heaven, because you have died. You died to the condemnation of the law. You died to your passions, to your worldly lusts. You died to the world. You died to your rights. And your earthly hopes and dreams were buried with you when you were buried with Jesus Christ. That's the first reason. And the second reason why we ought to seek heaven is because your life right now, currently hidden with Christ in God. Your life is concealed in Christ. And not only is your life hidden with Christ, but the Scripture continues and tells us something more shocking, more audacious, that Christ Himself is what? Your life. Meaning. Do you want to know the meaning and purpose of your life? <laughs> you look to Him. He's your life. Do you want to have ambition? It's in Him. Your satisfaction and delight are in Him. His purpose is your purpose. His desire is meant to be your desire. 
His will, his priorities are your will and your priorities such that without Christ, since he is your life, without Christ, you kind of feel lifeless. There is no life in you. So you seek heaven by seeking the one who reigns in heaven, who is your life. That's number two. And if these two reasons are not enough to seek heaven, the third perhaps will make it. What is it, the third one? Your future hope. What does this mean? It means this. What you do here and now will determine how you will live for eternity to come. Heaven is not one size fits all. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, tells us, For we here, we do not have a lasting city. But we are seeking the city which is to come. Brothers, this is not our home. We've got to live on earth as though that we are strangers in this world. Brothers, what do, you, what do you think of one <clears throat> who's waiting for only five minutes in a bus stop, waiting for a bus, and then he decides to waste most of his livelihood to buy the best couch, a good-looking picture frame, and a, and a nice kettle so he can feel good about himself while he's waiting for the bus. And then five minutes later, the bus comes and takes him home. Only to have a couple of pennies left over in his pocket. What do you think of such a man? What a fool, right? What a fool. Brothers, with all of my heart, I plead with you. Consider your eternity. Don't waste your life away like this fool. Lay treasure in heaven. Invest in heaven. Let whatever is left of your life now, which is really a drop of water in the ocean, let it be spent for Christ and the gospel. Seek heaven. You will never, for the next billion years, you will never regret it when you do that. So how do you do this? How do we do this? How do we seek heaven? Where do we begin? We come to today's passage. We'll have a look at generalization, specification, and motivation. Don't get overwhelmed by the length of the words. We'll understand what they mean. First, generalization. Paul here gives you a general direction of what you ought to do and he says in verse 5 therefore again meaning in the light of those reasons above that we just mentioned what do you do what do you do consider the members of your earthly body as dead you have to go all out and vigorously speaks of violence here Killing every sin in your life. That's the way you seek heaven. Now, 
Let's break this down a little bit and I want to help you to understand what Paul is saying here. First of all, I want to say as much as I love NASB, but this is not the most accurate translation. In fact, if you read it just as this, it may even be misleading. Consider. Consider the members of your earthly body as they just consider it? No. It is far more than that. Let me prove it to you. What am I going to do? And you'll get it straight away. I'm going to read to you the Greek translation word for word. Just extracting the words from, from the Greek. And I'm just, and this is the, the way it's rendered, literally. Put to death, therefore, the members on the earth. Put to death. So consider as, it's actually one word, and it means to kill, to mortify. And what is it that you've got to kill? The members of your earthly body. Now, what is this? You know, if you're a Christian, you're born again, praise God for that. And what this means that you're born again is God regenerated your heart. Took the heart of stone, gave you a new heart, and with that new heart there's a new nature, divine nature, and with this divine nature you do love Christ. It is pure nature as God's nature. It does not sin. Praise God for that. This is great. And so this is not what we ought to put to death. Of course it's not. So what is it that we've got to put to death? Well, we have unredeemed flesh. Our flesh has not been redeemed yet. This is why we sin. Meaning for us as believers, sin now reigns where? In the unredeemed flesh. Sometimes now, and in this context here, Paul says, the members of your earthly body. Same. It's synonymous. So there are still passions and thoughts and desires beneath this flesh and blood and they're yet not dead to sin. And so in the life of a believer, from, from the point of justification all the way to glorification, what is glorification? It is when, when we die as believers and we get, um, um, you know, and, and we get redeemed, our bodies get redeemed from that point to that point that's called this window here, it's called sanctification. And in this period of sanctification, you and I are called to do what? To put to death all kinds of sin that dwell in this unredeemed flesh. So what Paul is saying here is that you've got to seek the things above. Remember, it was imperative command. You've got to seek the things above. How do you do this? You begin by making a decisive resolution, once and for all, to put to death every sin in your life. To bring the entirety of your flesh in subjection to Jesus Christ. Don't think twice about it. Commit at once. Now this radical dedication is not unusual for Paul. He said it many, many times in Romans 12. Let me read to you Romans 13, 14. He says this, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision 
for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, brothers, we need to remind ourselves when Jesus Christ was hung naked on the cross and shed his blood for us, when the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ and he drank that full cup, it wasn't so that we can live it up or so that we can live comfortably in this life and also at the same time rest assured that we have eternity. And we do this in this perishing world. And then somehow, every now and then, we pay Jesus a little visit by coming here like we're visiting our grandma at a nursing home. It's not meant to be like this. No. When he awakened your soul, when he raised you from the dead, you were brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ so that you could live entirely for him. Therefore, you are called to bring your flesh on its knees and to bow down to Jesus Christ. I know in this modern world, where we have many different versions of Christianity. We think we, we hit the jackpot. We can win the world and heaven at the same time. But you can't read this in the Bible. You won't find it anywhere. Christianity is not meant to be a walk in the park. When Paul says, put to death what he is saying to you and to the brother sitting next to you that you are at war. So sharpen your sword. Hack to pieces all your inner enemies that hinder you and, and make you carry dead weight at your, as you're seeking heaven. Whether it's your pride, laziness, selfishness, and you are not to spare any prisoners. And in this war, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Eliminate those sins at once. Every snake must die. Every weed must be pulled right out of the garden. Does that mean he's saying, again, uh, believers don't sin from the moment that they're, uh, they're become a Christian? No, we need to understand something very important in the context of this passage. He's not telling you... Um, that you're not going to sin, but he's actually calling you for dedication. This is in the aorist tense. He's, he's calling you once and for all to consecrate your life until your whole body comes under total submission. To whom? To the one who loves you and died for you in order to save you. And seek heaven this way. This is the generalization. So it's something general here. 
And why is it general? Because Paul now moves on and he, and he becomes even more specific. And he gives us a list of sins. In fact, he gives us two lists. One in verse 5, which we'll be covering this week. And there's another list in verse 8. Two different lists. We'll be focusing on the first list. Both are deadly. Both are to be put to death. Absolutely. But we're going to continue walking through it step by step. In fact, now we're going to go through it word by word. So we understand how we ought to seek heaven. So second point, specification. All right. Well, in this list, in verse 5, there are four elements. And each element must be severed, must be cut off. So what is heading those elements? Immorality. What does immorality mean? In Greek, it's the word pornia. Where we get the word pornography from. And it means basically every kind of sexual sin, you are to put to death all forms of illicit sex. Unlawful sexual sin must be severed. The scripture repeatedly commands us to cut off this debilitating sin. In fact, as I was researching the scripture, I found that most of the time where there is a list of sins that are mentioned in the scripture, sexual immorality seems to come on top. Not every single time, but most of the times it comes on the top. How much all the more in this age that we live in, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a, command, that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul sums up the will of God for us. You know what he says? For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. What is that? He says, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God for you. To abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians again, chapter 6 says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And you know the rest of the verse. Over the years, young men would come up to me and, and they asked me those most frequent questions. What's wrong with having a girlfriend? What's wrong with touching? What's wrong with kissing? The Bible says if it's not your wife, if it's not a man and a woman in a bond of marriage, you have no business to do with that woman. Don't be deceived. 
That's what the Bible says. What the Bible says is to flee, to abstain. A person who can't think of any other sin that is more prominent and more crippling our society than sexual sin. The amount of sexual scenes as an average man would watch in a standard national TV over one evening would far outweigh what our grandparents exposed to in their whole lifetime. We need to understand what kind of wicked and perverse generation we're living in. I graduated as an internet engineer. And that was my specialty for many years. And I can tell you that what gave pumping money, truckloads of money into our internet and why it has been reached this fast speed is because of the porn industry. We need to understand this. We need to understand that the porn industry is a booming industry and it is powerful and it wants to destroy you and destroy your children. Or how we ought to watch out and be on alert for this. Don't worry, they're not offended. She told me that her uh, she needs to leave early. That's okay. <laughs> You know, over the years, I want to share with you something very important. Over the years, I had many opportunities to speak to young men, whether from this church or different churches, ranging between um, year 7 to year 10. And, and, and those young men, they, they, they went to all different kinds of schools. It doesn't make any difference anymore. Private schools, Christian, very conservative Christian schools, obviously public schools, grammar school, I asked them all. I asked them the very same question. You want to know what the question I asked them? I asked them this. How many kids do you know who have access and addicted to porn? And guess what the answer was? It was consistently the same. Guess what the answer was? And you can verify that if you have access to young men or you know of some, go and speak to them. Verify my claim. I'm telling you what I've heard. 100%. Many young men from different schools and the answer was identical. Staggering number, 100%. Go figure. How do you get that number? Man, just say 99. Maybe it will make it more believable.
And then they said to me, boys at school, they go and they encourage one another and they share with each other the latest porn video within the schools, even in, in conservative schools. It really doesn't matter what kind of honoring, godly teacher you have anymore. What we must understand is, brothers and sisters, we live in an era that is not any different from Sodom and Gomorrah. I made it my mission one day to go and speak to a principal of a very conservative Christian school. Somebody's going to have to say something. So be it. Let it be me. doesn't matter. I went to that principal to talk to him about this. I asked him, do you know what's happening under the roof of this school? He goes, yes, but what can I do about it? Do you realize that the boys in your school use even the school's devices and they know how to get around the security measures that you put in place to stop them from going into these places. They know how to get around it because guess what? They got an older cousin, older brother, older friend who knows how to hack that system and then they go and access illicit pictures. And get this. They do this during their classrooms, let alone who knows what they do at lunchtime in their classrooms. And the principal told me, he goes, all other schools use devices. What am I going to do? If, 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 if the kids in my, in my school don't use devices, the parents will not bring him here. They'll take him somewhere else. That's not the point. The point is this. Brothers, sisters, parents. Don't close your eyes. Don't ignore the elephant in the room. We have an entire generation from as young as 12 and 13 years old that is hooked to sexual sin. And it's never been like this before. Never. Not on this scale. Not with the, uh, the, the ease of accessibility. Not even during the Roman time and the pagan time. Not like this. Where with a, a, a flick of a button, even in your own home, under your own roof, and a 12-year-old son would be addicted to, to sexual sin. Watch out. Sexual revolution, whether a heterosexual or homosexual, it's, a, it's like a, a tsunami and it's sweeping through Australia. And it's inundating us. It, our schools, universities, TVs, internet, everywhere. Parents, don't turn a blind eye to this for the sake 
of your children's career, they get destroyed. I can't think of many other sins that would cripple your spiritual life, your own spiritual life. In fact, to be, to be honest with you, I don't know of any sin that causes a family to, dis, to be dysfunctional and suck the life out of a, a believer more than this sin. And I don't know if you are aware of it or not, but we live in an age where women are now almost equally affected by it just as men. God says in this passage, if you're going to seek heaven, if you want to enjoy this genuine communion with Christ, you have to commit once and for all to putting away this sin. Now, how do we do it? How do we avoid sexual sin? Second in the list, impurity. Impurity. What does impurity mean? It means filthiness, uncleanness. It goes beyond just the sexual act, and now it's moving into the evil thoughts that are in the mind. Evil thought it embraces the imaginations and the thoughts of a filthy mind. Again, we go back into this universal axiom. You do what you do because you think what you think. If you commit a sexual act, it is because you think of sexual thoughts. This is why Mark 7, 21 says, For from within, is Jesus saying this, For from within, out of the heart of man, the first thing in the list is, Proceed evil thoughts, then immediately after this, and flows out of this, he says, fornications. So what you entertain your mind with, you will eventually commit to. What does this mean? It means this. You can't say, ah, oh, look, I'll, I'll just watch this MA 15 plus movies that have adult themes and all the rest of it. Or maybe perhaps hang out in a sexually perverted environment. But that's okay because I've got my purity in my pocket. It's in the bag. You can't say that, brothers, sisters. You cannot. Evil thoughts produce evil behavior. And you know what? The opposite is also true. Pure thoughts give birth to pure behavior. Let me say it another way because I want to make sure we get this. Brothers, it is in the turf of your mind the battle for sexual purity is either won or lost. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Look what Paul says, how he concludes Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, honor and what, what do you have to do? Dwell on these things. Don't be overconfident. What you entertain your mind with, whatever environment you are exposed to, sexually perverted environment, it will get you. Ah, one might say, oh, but Jesus, Jesus is our leader. Look at him. Look at him. He, he sat one day and he had a prostitute wiping and cleaning her his feet with her hair and tears fell out of her eyes and and she she kissed his feet and his he was still pure so why can't i hang around in a perverted environment and i would still maintain my purity answer because we have something my brother and sister that jesus never had what is it? Let's look at the third element. Stick to the text. Let's read the text. The third element says, passion and in comma, evil desires. I bundle these two together because they're both are very, very similar. You know, passion, really the only difference, I think that the difference between passion and evil desires is that passion speaks of the state of mind. You know, that hungers for sexual sin. This constant, relentless appetite, if you like, for sexually perverted sin, that condition. While evil desire is evil desire. It's the evil yearning, the longing, the lust, these impulses that we have in our unredeemed flesh. It is something in our unredeemed flesh that Jesus never had. It's part of our fallenness. And brothers, if a man says, I don't have evil desires, sexual evil desires, I don't have it, I've got it down packed. And yet at the same time, he's exposed to it day and night. He's not saying the truth. Because not until we die, so long as we are carrying around this unredeemed flesh with us, there remains passions and evil desires that we must slay with the power of the Holy Spirit. Muslimed. You can say, I'm managing it well. It's there, but I'm keeping close contact and making sure my, the garden of my mind is nice and clean. You can say that, and, and, and then your life will tell that you're doing that because you're not exposing yourself to it. But if you expose yourself to it, look what the Bible says. Proverbs gives us a great warning about this. 
This is not my words. This is what the Bible says. And it says this, Proverbs 6.27, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burnt? Context, sexual sin. Many Christians are daily heaping for themselves fire of these sexual desires in their chest. And it is scarring them because they're not guarding their minds against their impure thoughts. They're too casual when they're entertaining their minds with sexual thoughts. What does that mean? Let me explain to you. I'm going to just slowly help you understand this. You know, those passions and evil desires, they're, they're like beasts living in you. And unless you starve those beasts, they will devour you. How do you starve them? Well, don't feed them, of course. That's what well, how do you get them fed? Through the mind. You see, the mind is the mouth for these evil desires. This is how it works. First, you're exposed to sexual sin, sexual scene. Perhaps in a, in a sexual perverted environment, you're watching a movie, whatever it is. then the pulse of lust goes straight to your mind. And at this point, you give in to this point. Your mind begins to say, in your thoughts, I like what I see. A little later, I want what I see. So what do you do is that you stare long enough, you start entertaining thoughts, you begin to think, man, I need this sexual desire to be fulfilled. And so you move from I want to now, you would say, I can't live without this. Then what happens to this desire it begins to rule you. And so though your conscience then kicks in, I would say, hey, wait a second. This woman is not your wife. But by that time, it's already way too late. How come? Because once this evil desire rules you, it will clog your mind. And you begin to think irrationally. Begin to rationalize. And you negotiate with yourself. And you come to a state where you would say, Oh, look, I deserve this. I'm entitled to it. Whatever. Then you will trample over your conscience and the word of God. And the last nail in your coffin is that you will think, Man, this is mine. This is mine. I've got to have it. Now, why am I saying all of this? I want to help you understand where all these thoughts are found. They're in that impure mind. Impure mind. And God says, 
this beast must be starved to death. How? By not feeding your mind sexual thoughts. What does that mean? Let's be practical. There are books that you're not meant to be reading. You must, be th- you must throw them out. There are shows and movies that you must not watch. Brothers, I'm not being legalistic to say to you in the name of what we are talking about in the, in the spirit of the scripture, there are places that you should not go to. There are people that you must not hang out with and relationships that you've got to cut off. Think about it, brothers. You want to seek heaven? Or you want to play games with God? Now, the last element in the list, it says greed, which amounts to idolatry. Greed. is What in the world is it here for? Let me explain to you. I mean, this is a, um, a catch-all phrase behind all of these things. Basically, it says that there is self-idolatry. Greed, which amounts to idolatry. But how is greed, idolatry, if you like, because it's synonymous with greed according to this, have anything to do with sexual sins? Well, You can't be worshipping God while you are given to sexual sins, right? You can't. Now, if you're not worshipping God that moment, who are you worshipping? Self. Self Self-idolatry. A mother of all sins. And even that must be put to death. The issue of sexual immorality is not so much what is outside of us, it begins here, inside of us. And, and sexual immorality finds its roots all the way down to self-idolatry. And this dragon must be slayed internally. This is why modern psychology does not work. Right? We get this? It doesn't work. Why it doesn't work? Because modern psychology presupposes that man is basically good from the inside. He just needs to change the external behavior. But God consistently says man is basically bad. Even as believers, you have unredeemed flesh. And if you want to be freed from sexual immorality, it has to begin by admitting with God that man is totally bankrupt internally. It begins with repentance. And not only repentance from what you do, it's repentance of why you do what you do. Self-idolatry. It begins with that. And it moves on to those evil desires and the passions and moves further to your evil thoughts. Internally. Again, so much for self-esteem and all this jargon that the world tries to bombard upon us. 
Now one would say, it's just too hard to let go of all of these things. I mean, it will make me, it will drive me insane if I stop these things. Money, career, future. Brothers, do, you, do we actually think when Paul wrote, put to death, he didn't know that there will be some form of violence in his dedication, put to death? He didn't know that it's going to be really hard? Put to death. What is in, in killing that is not painful? To, to, to chop off heads of those snakes, it will mean tears and blood. This is why he says, put to death, kill, crucify. It's painful. And he understands that. He's going through it himself when he was alive. But if you want some motivation, we'll come to the third point. And we'll finish with this. Let's just say this will be our application. The third point, motivation. Paul doesn't leave it here. He continues and he says, For it is, that's verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. You have no business to do with the sons of disobedience. No fellowship between darkness and light. Right? Now, what does this mean? For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. You know, this God's settled holy anger that is burning against unbelievers, it's because of those sins. That's why he's angry with unbelievers, because of those sins. And, be, and you know that. And if you know that, why wouldn't you commit to putting to death those sins? Why? Again, let me explain what, what it's not saying. I have to qualify. It's not saying here that if you commit such sins as a believer, that somehow will place you under the wrath of God. No, not at all. Why? Because once you're saved, you're always saved. Praise God for this. You are always, forever forgiven. Right? The blood of Jesus washed you entirely clean. He already drank that wrath of God, that cup of misery. He drank it for you. You're no longer under wrath. We've got to get that down pat. So what is it saying? Saying this. If you know that your heavenly father hates sexual immorality along with its passion and evil desires so much that he's going to punish sexual immoral people by casting them into hell forever and ever. Hey, this is how much God hates sexual immorality. 
And shouldn't you abhor it as well? Shouldn't, shouldn't you say, how could I flirt around with this, this heinous sin when my father hates it so much? And in verse 7, Paul continues and says, it's part of the motivation, he says, and in them you also once walked. You once walked. You remember when you practiced those sins? And not just practiced them. He continues on, when you were living in them, living, not just the, the doers of them, you were drowning in those sexual sins. Saved videos, hidden magazines, God only knows what else. You will you will like those sons of disobedience. Right? Remember that? Remember when you were enslaved to them? Yes, I remember. Well, now that God freed you from this enslavery, when He had mercy upon you, why would you go back to it? Why, after drinking the fresh, healthy water from the heart of Christ, as you are now in communion with Him, now, why would you go back and you try to quench this inner thirst by drinking vomit? Vomit! That would scar you for life. Why? I would to God that He would open our eyes. So that we would realize that in Jesus Christ, there is so much pleasure, far more powerful and fulfilling pleasure than the pleasure of indulging in our carnal desires. What about, what about my career? The career of my children. What about my money? What about, what about my education? Oh, brothers. Think for a moment. Put it on the scale. The scale of eternity. Where in one hand, you've got this muddy-like insignificant material gain, temporal drop of, of the water in the ocean compared to the everlasting and the intensity of the joy of experiencing and knowing Jesus Christ. What is it that you would lay at the feet of Christ? What is it? That in 10 billion years from now, after you sought, 
after heaven and you are in, in eternity in the bosom of Christ and you look back and you would not consider them as dirt, as, de- as, as, as sand, as even filth compared to the treasure of enjoying Christ for eternity. If you lay down your possession or your career or, your, or the career path of your children at the feet of Christ, you're not making a loss. You are investing. You are investing, brothers, for eternity. Seeking heaven. This is where it begins. By not seeking earth. But placing everything at the feet of Christ in order to enjoy him. And the first line of sins that Paul tells us, we've got to slay sexual sins. Amen? Let's bow our heads and worship God. Lord... We come before you and we're humbled and we are broken and oh, how much we need Christ to continually change our hearts, to continually purify our thoughts. Your son Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Lord, is there any greater pleasure than beholding you? Make us pure, Lord. Make us pure. Cause us to be on high alert for the sake of our purity, not so that we can stand and say how pure we are, how great we are, but because we know that this is the means by which we can behold more of your Son, Jesus Christ. Cause this church to be pure, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.